You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here and around the world. Today, I'm joined by ecologist Megan Oldfather from the Department of Integrative Biology. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. Um, we've had a few ecologists, but a few more is always good. That's what I think. And just a little background. Let's see. Are you born in California? Yes, I'm a California native. I actually grew up right across the bay in Marin County. So grew up with a lot of open space, and that definitely started sort of my love of being outside and being in the outdoors. I believe it. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I saw, yeah, we'll talk more about this, but I saw you did your undergrad in the UC system, and now you're still in the UC system, so you must like it. Yeah, and even when I tried to work in other jobs and I worked in Colorado for a while, I was still working for UC, just in Colorado, so it's hard to escape them. <laughs> okay, nice. Okay, so Marin County, uh, you mentioned the open spaces. Is that where you first got your love for the outdoors? Definitely. I grew up both mountain biking a ton and also doing actually a lot of horseback riding. So I spent a lot of time on my own just sort of roaming the hills of Marin County. Yeah, I grew up um, sort of near Fairfax, which has a ton of open space and out in Geronimo Valley, and it's beautiful. Very nice. And I know that ecologists can mean a lot of things, but you focus primarily on plants. Right. So I focus mostly on plants and then mostly at the scale of a population. So I would also refer to myself more specifically as a population biologist, as I'm interested in interactions between different individuals, but mostly at the scale of populations where they're inbreeding. So would you mind telling us what your definition of a population is? Yeah, so ecologists usually think of populations as any group of the same species that are interacting and breeding with each other. So for humans, as an example, would, would that mean all humans are like one global population? Or is this too tricky? I know no, you don't study I mean, humans. So. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, so, yeah, and I think that actually... I would argue that potentially it could be, but I think that is really where, in truth, when we start trying to apply that definition to natural systems, it gets really tricky. Like how much breeding with another group that's a little bit spatially separated do you need to have before you're one giant population? And so I think there's a lot of debates about that, even for plants. And yeah, I can't speak to humans. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I like to think of us as one global population. There you go. Yeah, I'm just throwing the hard questions at you at the yeah. beginning. So so how did you get interested in populations? Was that like from the beginning of your research, you you found the population to be the most interesting unit for your group? or? Um, so I think populations are interesting to me because I'm interested in the effects of climate change on species. And a population is where you can really put together how all the species in a certain space are responding to climate change. And if you look at them as a population, then you can see how the total fitness of those individuals or how well they're doing really drive how that population is either going to go extinct or expand. So is extinction something that we, we are worrying about with climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely local extinction. So thinking about species at the warmer, drier edges of their range might be extirpated from that local area. And, and I think that's a really good distinction of like global extinction of a species versus local extinction. 
I mean, they are related, obviously, but. Well, if I was going to play devil's advocate, couldn't I say that, well, if they're just going extinct locally, then it doesn't really matter that much because they'll exist on the planet still. It just won't be in the same area. I think the reason why it does matter is that places, if you see lots of local extinctions, eventually that will start to have total species effects. And as species ranges get smaller, not only potentially due to climate change, but also due to habitat fragmentation, which is a huge issue, that we could see whole species collapsing more quickly if they get smaller and smaller, sort of more chewed out ranges. Okay. So let's go back to your undergrad, because you did some research in undergrad too, right? Mm -hmm. what, uh, what sort of research did you do there? So when I was an undergrad, I didn't know yet that I was going to love plants. So I was more interested in potentially working in behavioral ecology. I grew up with a ton of animals, um, mostly horses, and I was really interested in how animals interacted with each other. And I wanted to really work with birds. I really loved birds, and I thought that that's what I was going to work on. Well, they hang out in plants, so, you know. Right. They eat plants. <laughs> it's all close. And what, what happened? Um, so I had a couple short-term jobs where I worked on birds. And I really enjoy watching birds. You know, I like to be, I like to go out and find rare birds. But I definitely, I'm too much of a bleeding heart that once there's any sort of like catching birds and, and I, a lot of the mist netting, which is how you, you set up nets in flyways and then you can catch birds and then mark them or take measurements and then release them. And it, it doesn't hurt the birds, but, you know, it stresses them out a little bit. And for me, I was, it was stressful to have them be stressed out. And it was just made the experience not fun anymore. Just so. too sympathetic, huh? I guess so. <laughs> so, you, okay, so you, uh, you decided you love birds, but you didn't want to do research on them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, plants, you said behavioral ecology, and then you went to plants. And, I mean, can you call what plants do behavior? Or did you just have to leave behavior behind completely? Um, I think the way that you can call some of their sort of how they how they act as behavior is that, and this might be why I'm interested in populations, is we can think about a bunch of different trade-offs between if you a plant grows or a plant reproduces, and one might be better to do in a certain situation or a different sequence of years. And so we can kind of think the plant is is making that choice. Although it's usually it's driven by environmental cues, but it's it's choosing to sort of behave one way or another by, you know, this year I'm going to be reproductive or no, no, it's too dry. This year I'm just going to stay and grow some more leaves. Okay. So uh, some behavior in there. Okay. Yeah. So undergrad, I forgot to mention, you went to UC Santa Cruz, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. And did you do plant research there or did you wait till grad school? No, so I did some work there on bristlecone pines. I worked under a graduate student there that was looking at the spatial dynamics of bristlecone pines. So, sorry, I should say first, bristlecone pines are super cool because they are the oldest known living species. I think if you don't count clonal things, which makes the definition a little bit tricky, but bristlecone pine trees can live up to 4,000 and more years old. And they're found in the White Mountains in Eastern California, which is actually where I do my research now, too. But I work on alpine plants, so a little bit smaller. 
but I still get to hang out around these super awesome trees. Is that the only place they're found is here in California? Yeah, so this this really old pine type. There's a couple species that are closely related, but this one that lives super, um, for a really long time is only found in this sort of eastern chunk of California. And the White Mountains actually sort of straddle California and Nevada, so there's some in Nevada, too. We can't take complete credit for oh, it. Oh, okay. Too bad, too bad. <laughs> so what do you do with the bristlecone pines? So we were looking, mostly focusing on young bristlecone pines, which is sort of a funny thing to think about because anything that's even like, you know, up to our knee height is probably 300 years old because they grow really slowly. But we were looking at sort of, even though it's such an old species, how often do you have new individuals germinating and establishing in the area? So we were interested in that on a couple different soil types and then also along an elevation gradient. Okay. So you got to go hang out in the White Mountains then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so I spent a couple summers up there, um, and that was fun. And I think it really made me fall in love with that place. Which is why you still do work there, huh? Yep. Okay, so lots of research as an undergrad, and then you came north. So what brought you to UC Berkeley? Was it you just wanted to be back in the Bay, or do you um, have another reason? <laughs> <laughs> just awesome here. It's a good enough reason for me, but I thought I'd ask. Yeah, so I think I was really drawn to the, my lab more than just the university as a whole. I mean, obviously, it's got a great integrative biology program. But I was interested. I, I'm in um, David Ackerley's lab. And I'm interested. It was interested in being in that lab, particularly because of this focus of looking at spatial heterogeneity, which was sort of the differences in climate along really short spatial scales. And understanding how that affected plant species in the context of climate change. And I'd, I'd worked with a lot of people before that worked more on population dynamics. So I felt like I got that background from other people. But I was looking to sort of get a different perspective of also understanding climate. Okay, so... Spatial heterogeneity. So an example I'm thinking of, which is probably completely wrong, but maybe somewhat right, is I've heard like, I'm, I'm, de I'm getting the details wrong, but like, you know, northern facing hills might have more precipitation than like southern facing ones or like, so it's that small variation. Yeah, that no, that's, I mean, that's the right idea in the sense of you'd have areas that were either north or south facing and it's often you can have differences in precipitation between those two but often you you'll see differences in maximum temperatures and just because of the way the sun tracks and I'm really interested also in like little gullies so which is really are important for the distributions of alpine plants in particular but an area that's sort of in a in a gully is often much more protected, so it doesn't get as hot. It can actually get a lot colder at night through this process called cold air pooling, where it, it actually, the cold air gets sucked down into that, that canyon. And in addition, it can be a lot wetter at those sites, predominantly just because water runs downhill. So I'm interested in, in that kind of, those kinds of really small scale. And so this might impact plants more than animals, for example, because they just don't move around as much? Yeah, exactly. Like plants are sort of stuck once they've germinated in a single place. And especially for a long-lived woody vegetation, it really depends on where you are and how you can deal with it through your different life stages. 
So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Graduates here on Calix. My name is Tesla, and I'm joined by Megan Oldfather from the Department of Integrative Biology, and she's telling us about her work on plants and also birds and uh, her time in the UC system investigating population level variation and spatial heterogeneity and these other big words. And uh, you mentioned climate change, too, right? So is that something that you got into more recently with your work here at Berkeley? Definitely. Um, so I think that deep down, I'm really interested in sort of very general questions about range limits. So every species exists across space and has some sort of limit to that. And we often, I mean, you think we would know, but we off, we do not have the best idea of like why certain species have limits where they do. And I think that's a very interesting sort of general question and is just become more and more relevant as we think about how species might shift their ranges with climate change. And rain shifts are thought to be one of the major biological effects of climate change, that species will try and move around the landscape in order to track their climate. So how would this work with plants then, since they can't physically move themselves? Yeah, we need to start thinking about total life histories. So we need to start thinking about you know, where are plants going to be able to still reproduce? And then where are they still going to be able to germinate and actually establish and grow enough to reproduce again? So it's sort of like plants are on this slower time scale. <laughs> yeah, which seems like it could cause some troubles and some of this climate stuff is happening pretty quickly. Huh? Right, exactly. It's definitely that we need to consider generation time. So how long does it take for one individual to replace itself in the context of how fast climate is changing? Those two things need to be hopefully linked up. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, uh, you know, my background's in, in animals more, but it's the same in animals where like often the larger animals are the ones with longer generation times. And those are also the animals that we're seeing to be more threatened. So you can think of things like large cats, like lions and tigers, elephants, polar bears, all of these large animals, whales, um, with longer generation times, they're also feeling more dramatic effects from rapid changes. So it's interesting that it applies across the across the line. <laughs> yeah, you see it in plants too. Definitely just although I mean there's been a lot of shown huge amounts of mortality in California forests with the drought and although there's been some loose connection, it's not totally clear about whether this drought is related to climate change directly, but we'll definitely see more sort of hot, dry conditions like this drought that also could kill trees. So they're definitely potentially more sensitive. So tell us a little bit about your current work. You still work on trees? No. So I work on alpine plants now. One of the reasons I do that is because if you study trees, looking at their entire life cycle, trying to understand what a full generation will look like is not applicable in the time span of a PhD, which is for me will be about six years. And so I chose a long-lived plant, lives lifespan about 20 years, that is manageable, but I can also try and understand a little bit about how generation time affects sensitivity. Well, if it lasts 20 years, how are you going to do the generation time thing? Well, so mostly it's less that I need to follow an entire individual through its life cycle, but more that I need to be able to estimate 
different rates in particular, like pretty much how a species moves through its life cycle. And the really hard one with trees is actually to estimate mortality because tree mortality doesn't happen that often in sort of how we think about time at our own generation scale. And so it's hard to estimate just even the natural variation of tree mortality. But with a 20-year lifespan over five years, you can usually get a good idea of how many individuals die per year. Interesting. So you mentioned alpine plants. Can you tell us what what is an alpine plant? Yeah, so alpine plants are any plants that live above tree line. And tree line is super cool because it's sort of a global phenomenon that exists about at the same um, temperature gradient in most places. And so anything above that is considered an alpine plant. So I've been on some like ski mountains and they got trees up there though. Is that above the tree line or or not? How how do you tell? <laughs> well, so yeah, you only can tell just no trees. It's just an area. It has to be completely devoid of trees. And then you really start to see very different types of communities of plants up there. Often the plants that live in the alpine are really short stature, so they're really small and mostly that's thought because if they got any bigger, it's often so windy at higher elevation, they would be really destructive to them. It's also a lot warmer near the ground, just in general. There's like a little ba- it's a boundary layer effect, which is that they're, the area right a couple inches abo- above the ground isn't affected by wind, so you don't lose heat as quickly, and it's much warmer. Interesting. So they have to hang out down there so they don't freeze. (laughs) Okay, so you're talking about really cold, high elevation temperatures that are really windy. And this this is where you work. Yeah, I love it up there. (laughs) Actually, so the place where I work right where I work right now, I stay at a research station at at 12.7. So it's 12,000 feet. And I stay there for about three months of the year. It's the only time there's no snow up there. And I have to do a little bit of a shout out to the group that runs those research stations called White Mountain Research Center. They're part of the UC Natural Reserve System, and they have three reserves, one in the Owens Valley, which is about 5,000 feet. They have one at about 10,000 and one at 12,7. They also have a hut at the top of White Mountain Peak, which is at 14,000, which you could stay at and do research if you so wanted. I'm here now. You haven't done that. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm happy at the 12-7-1. I've had a lot of friends who've gone and stayed up at that small hut. And like, you just, you don't feel that well. It's 14,000 feet. And like, why would you put yourself through that? You like won't sleep well. Like but 12,000 is okay or 12-7? That's almost 13,000. Yeah, that doesn't bother me as much. Once you get above 10,000 feet, every little bit matters past that. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you mentioned the UC Reserve System and these research stations. So maybe we could talk about the, what it, what is this UC Reserve System? Oh, so the UC Reserves are this really cool system of places that the UC has either owned land or rents land from the Forest Service that's used predominantly for research and for classes and for um, groups to go out there and sort of learn about the different types of environments. So one of the really cool reasons to work in California is that we have a huge range of different types of ecosystems in California. And the UC reserves span those. So they have coastal marine system um, reserves. They have 
One's up in the mountains. They have some in the more desert areas. There's a new one in Anser Borrego that they just opened. Wow. So, and they're all what... associated with, obviously, the UC school system. Then. Yeah, each one has its sort of like parent university that's in charge of it. And oftentimes people at that parent university have some of their entire lab programs that all work there. And Cool. Yeah. So what about the research station? Can you tell us a little bit about that, what that is? Yeah, so I have worked at a lot of different research stations in California and Colorado, mostly, and I absolutely love working at them. I think they are really critical and important parts of natural research, natural systems. I mean, one, because they often contain these huge historical records associated with them, so you're you're always required to send them all your data. And so you can, I'm actually, the species I work on was worked on by a different graduate student 25 years ago. So I actually can, I can compare some of my results to what he saw 25 years ago and how it's changed over, my species have changed over those last 25 years. Secondly, I think they're really cool because they foster a really nice sort of environment where you're working and living with people and you really get comfortable with enough people where you're, you know, sitting down and discussing your research and helping each other out and learning about new cool things. So does that mean people live at them all year round or most of the year? So a lot of research stations have people that live there permanently and some people come in and out, but then there's also a lot of people that will stay for a couple weeks at a time or a couple months at a time. Cool. It's fun. So I, I guess I should ask, um, with your research, are you at the point where you have any, you know, really fancy things you want to tell us about what you're finding out from your alpine plants? So a couple cool things that I've found out so far is that species at their range edges respond differently to manipulations in temperature and soil moisture in very different ways than species at their range center. So a lot of work that people do when they're trying to understand how a plant responds to the environment is often at the range center, mostly because it's where they're usually the most abundant. But what I'm finding is that when we actually look at the range edges, those have very different relationships with the environment, and which could be interesting because we want to predict how those populations will do in the future with climate change. You know, we need we need to understand their relationship with climate currently. So it's cool to see that the edges are acting different. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts on why the edges might be different? Is it just because they're not as well buffered as the central ones or might there be some other reasons? So one reason that they might be acting differently is because they might be genetically different. So these this species is super patchy. It exists in these sort of small little gullies across this elevational gradient, but it always sort of exists in these gullies and they're pretty separated. So we could think about if they don't have very high dispersal between the populations, which I would argue they don't because their stalks just like die and fall on the ground, then we could think that over time they've become genetically isolated and actually adapted to respond to the environment differently. Interesting. Okay, so we're at the point where I usually ask if people have any like big topics of concern. I mean, you've mentioned climate change several times, mm -hmm. but is there anything that you feel like the public isn't totally aware of that's of really big importance in your field? 
Um, I think that something that is really important to me is is that people just this is going to sound totally hokey, but I think that people we aren't going to start caring about what happens to our natural systems unless we really have people enjoying and experiencing those natural systems. And I think I'm a huge proponent for spending a lot of time in the system that you work in, but also having those areas be available to a large group of people and try and actually encourage people to get outside more and also to to learn about things when they are outside. So I think that at least in my experience working with plants and, and some with birds, oh, that's more of a hobby. You know, the more you know, the more you can kind of enjoy and feel like you have a connection with the environment that you're in, which we naturally do have that connection. It's just we're often lost in it. So I don't want to sound like a Luddite of like, we need to get off our cell phones. But <laughs> but maybe. But a little bit. And, um, you know, I where I work is pretty isolated and Although they've, I have to say, they've done great improvements on the internet recently. It used to be really slow, and I definitely noticed how much more I sort of learned about my system and how much more I enjoyed my system because I wasn't just, like, checking my email all the time and sort of tied into that. And maybe more, I think it's important that we sort of learn about these systems so that we can try and protect them. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, so as someone who's born and raised in the Bay who spent a lot of time in California, do you have any uh, favorite hiking spots? Not the ones that are secret that you don't want to give away, <laughs> but the ones that, you know, you would encourage people to go check out? Hmm. So I love Cronkite, which is a beach that's just sort of right over the headlands. I think in, in Marin, you can, if you drive up the headlands, it's kind of where you can see the Golden Gate Bridge. And then if you drop down on the other side, Cronkite Beach is really nice. I think it's a cool place to go. It's also dog friendly, which mm. I'm a huge proponent for. Um, and then secondly, there's a really cool hike out to a waterfall that I suggest everyone takes that's sort of starting out on Bolinas Peninsula. Can't, it's like you start at Duxbury Reef area, and you can hike all the way out to this really sweet waterfall called Alamir Falls, I believe. And that's an awesome hike. It's like a waterfall onto the beach, and I think it really shows off Marin's beauty. That's a, that's a, I could be there right now, actually. <laughs> Take me, please. What about advice for students? I mean, you did a lot of research as an undergrad, and obviously that helped you advance your research career and get into Berkeley. So what, what advice would you give to other interested students or even just people who are generally interested in research or understanding more about plants? Yeah, one suggestion would be do not be afraid to take time off between undergrad and graduate school. I took about two and a half years off. Sometimes I wish I'd taken more. I don't think in, at least in ecology, it's, you're not like punished for that as you might be in other scientific work. I'm not actually even sure about that. But I feel like my dissertation research has been greatly improved by the fact that I worked on other people's projects full time as like as technicians between undergrad and graduate and I think I learned so many things and I learned so many mistakes not to make on my own project so I would really that would be one of my main suggestions. No that's a great one and as we sort of finish up here I'll take this moment to ask you if you have any last words for the audience. Got a, anything we didn't cover I mean see we talked about your undergrad work and how you love birds and we talked about that uh, what kind of pine was that? 
Bristlecone Pine. Bristlecone Pine, 4,000 years old. It's pretty cool. And your current work, which is on alpine plants and understanding how they respond at the edge versus the central area and all these different spatial differences and little gullies, which is pretty cool. Um, but what did we miss anything? Um, I don't know if we missed anything, but I would say if you've never been to the White Mountains, and this is the White Mountains in California, not the ones on the East Coast. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I get that asked that a lot. You should go. It is one to me i think i'm very biased but one of the coolest places in california and if you love the sierras i feel like it's not like it at all but it really it really shows how you can have these cool high elevation systems that are also much drier and have very different species and you get to see the bristlecone pines so everyone should check it out awesome well thank you very much megan uh yeah we're at the end here so You've been listening to the graduates here on CalX, KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. My name is Tesla Munson, and today I've been joined by ecologist Megan Oldfather from the Department of Integrated Biology. She's been telling us about her work all the way from birds and bristlecone pines up to these alpine plants at 14, no, not 14, 12.7. Yeah, <laughs> 12,700 feet. They, they almost make it to 14. <laughs> That's, man, 12,000, though. Yeah, you start getting altitude sickness over 10, right? And some people even a little lower, I think. But So that's some serious hardcore field work, living in a research station at 12-7 for uh, three months out of the year. Um, so, yeah, it's been great talking to you, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. And we'll be back in two weeks with another episode of The Graduates. Until then, stay tuned. You're listening to KALX 